If you ever feel that people like me, preachers who live in a different universe, sort of cloud cuckoo land, always trying to make religion more easy than it really is or church feel better than it is, these last few chapters of Judges have disabused us of that notion, right? They are certainly boots on the ground real, and that continues with the passage we're looking at uh, this morning. We're going to pick up the story in Judges chapter 21. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to that passage, Judges 21. And we're looking particularly here at church, and I'm going to make that case for us and then apply it as we go through it. And it's a bit like one of those trains you see going on the train tracks through Wheaton with a huge kind of load of goods behind it. It takes a while to get there, but when you get there, you get a whole bunch of stuff, and that's kind of what this sermon, this passage is like. So Judges chapter 21, how church not only goes wrong, but how we can put it right is, is basically the theme. Let's pray as we come now to God's word. O Lord, open my lips that I might declare your praise. O Lord, open our hearts that we might receive the joy of your kingship. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So friends, Judges chapter 21, and beginning at verse 1, let's hear God's word. Now, the men of Israel had sworn at Mizpah, no one of us shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. And the people came to Bethel and sat there till evening before God, and they lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. And they said, O Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel, that today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel? And the next day the people rose early and built there an altar and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the people of Israel said, Which of all the tribes of Israel did not come up in the assembly to the Lord? For they had taken a great oath concerning him who did not come up to the Lord to Mizpah, saying, He shall surely be put to death. And the people of Israel had compassion on Benjamin, their brother, and said, One tribe is cut off from Israel this day. What shall we do for wives for those who are left, since we have sworn by the Lord that we will not give them any of our daughters for wives? And they said, What one is there of the tribes of Israel that did not come up to the Lord to Mizpah? And behold, no one had come to the camp from Jebesh-Gilead to the assembly. For when the people were mustered, behold, not one of the inhabitants of Jebesh-Gilead was there. So the congregation sent 12,000 of their bravest men there and commanded them, Go and strike the inhabitants of Jebesh-Gilead with the edge of the sword, also the women and the little ones. This is what you shall do. Every male and every woman that has lain with a male you shall devote to destruction." And they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh Gideon 400 young virgins who had not known a man by lying with him. And they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. Then the whole congregation sent word to the people of Benjamin, who were at the rock of Rimon, and proclaimed peace to them. And Benjamin returned to that time, and they gave them the women whom they had saved alive of the women of Jabesh Gideon, but they were not enough for them. And the people had compassion on Benjamin, because the Lord had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. Then the elders of the congregation said, what shall we do for wives, for those who are left, since the women are destroyed out of Benjamin? And they said, there must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin that a tribe not be blotted out from Israel, yet we cannot give them wives from our daughters, for the people of Israel had sworn, cursed be he who gives a wife to Benjamin. So they said, 
Behold, there is the yearly feast of the Lord at Shiloh, which is north of Bethel, on the east of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem and south of Lebanon. And they commanded the people of Benjamin, saying, Go and lie in ambush in the vineyards and watch. If the doors of Shiloh come out to dance in the dances, then come out of the vineyards and snatch each man his wife from the daughters of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin. And when their fathers or their brothers come to complain to us, we will say to them, Grant them graciously to us because we did not take for each man of them his wife in battle. Neither did you give them to them, else you would now be guilty. And the people of Benjamin did so and took their wives according to their number from the dancers whom they carried off. Then they went and returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and lived in them. And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family, and they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Spiritual but not religious. That's how I would describe myself, John Doe said to his friend. They were having a conversation. His friend was trying to invite John Doe to church. I'm spiritual but not religious, uh, John Doe said. I, 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 I believe in God. I think he exists. I pray sometimes. When I walk outside in the woods, I feel connected to a higher meaning. But church, organized religion, well, I don't mind if you go, he said to his friend. Got nothing against that. I'm not going to judge you for going, but for me, I'm spiritual but not religious. And if I am to be frank, he, he carried on to his friend. The church doesn't exactly have a very good track record of being very spiritual, does it? What about the Crusades? What about this and that abuse? What about institutions of power? And No, 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 I'm not against you going. But I'm spiritual, not religious. I'm sure all of us at some point or other have come across that kind of argument. It may be an argument you yourself entertain. There are some good reasons for doing so. People have often felt like this. It's not actually a new thing. Back in the mid-20th century, a well-known journalist called Malcolm Muggeridge, who was, who was converted in, 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 as an adult, wrote this about the dangers of institutional religion. And I quote, one of the most effective defense systems against God's incursions has hitherto been organized religion. The various churches provided a refuge for fugitives from God. His voice drowned in the chanting, his smell lost in the incense, his purpose obscured and confused in creeds, dogmas, dissertations, and other priestly pronouncements. In vast cathedrals, as in little conventicles, or just wrapped in Quaker silence. You could get away from God. Plain song 
held him at bay, as did revivalistic eloquence, hearty hymns and intoned prayers, confronted with that chanting, moaning, gurgling religious voice. Dearly beloved brethren, I pray and beseech you. Or with that earnest, open, do-good face, shining like the morning sun with all the glories that human flesh is heir to. God could be relied on to disappear. That was his judgment on the dangers of organized religion. People have felt like this down through the years, you know. One very well-known preacher went to a South American city uh, towards the end of the 20th century and came across a whole group of Christians who had checked out of the institutional church. They had given themselves a name, uh, Christianos Descolgargos, I think I got the Spanish right. It, it meant unhooked Christians. They had found the institutional church inauthentic, spiritual, but not religious. And as we come to the end of this book of Judges here, the author of Judges is applying his principle. We we, we see the principle in the last words of the book, verse 25 of chapter 21. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. He's implying that principle of the significance, importance, and central concern of his that God's people have God's king as their king, that king who rescued them from Egypt, brought them into the promised land, that we now know as Christians is fulfilled in King Jesus, that king is their king. He's now applying that principle to church. So what I think this passage is teaching us is the following. Church is only the solution if Jesus is our king. And to make that case, we're going to demonstrate, I'm going to seek to demonstrate that from the passage and then we'll reflect on it a little bit and then apply it. So first of all, we're going to demonstrate it together. I'll look, seek to demonstrate it for us. Church is only the solution of Jesus is our king. Well, uh, to begin with, it's important you realize that that idea of church is, is central throughout these last two chapters. It's repeated over and over again. You can see if you turn back in your Bibles to chapter 20, verse 1, uh, it says that they, the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah. Well, that, that word assembled, the Greek translation of the Hebrew of it is the same word that is behind the translation of the, the, the New Testament tra- translation, church. We could say the congregation went to church at Mizpah. Uh, You can see the same sort of thing indicated in all sorts of different ways in in chapter 21, um, verse 5. Why did they not come in the assembly to the Lord? Why didn't they come to church? The assembly. Uh, You can see it uh, in verse 10. The congregation. We have congregational meetings as church. The congregation sent. Or verse 13. The whole congregation Verse 16, the elders of the congregation. This is church. And once you see that, it really becomes quite remarkable. 
And in fact, again, it's going to take a little bit of work there, but like that train coming on those train tracks, but there's a huge lot of good stuff that comes with it once we get there. There were three gatherings here. And each of those gatherings had their own characteristic and were at centers of religious influence. Uh, famous centers of religious influence at the time. In contemporary terms, we might say they went to church in Canterbury, Rome, and uh, I don't know, Wheaton. What are those three famous centers of religious influence? Well, they're Mizpah, Bethel, and Shiloh. Mizpah, we, we had it referred to again at the beginning of chapter 21, verse 1, they had, what they had said at Mizpah. And in the first part of chapter 20 uh, till verse 17 is all the description of what took place at Mizpah. That church at Mizpah, now Mizpah was about four miles north of Jerusalem. It means watchtower. It was a place of spiritual watching. It was one of the great centers of the great prophet Samuel's influence. When he traveled around Israel, he would stop off at different places to judge Israel. That is to have influence and leadership over Israel. And Mizpah was one of the places he went. Great center of religious influence. It was also where um, King Saul was first proclaimed king, King Saul, who's the archetype of a bad king. Well, that happened at Mizpah too, because it was a center of religious influence and political influence as well. It may have been where Jacob and Laban made a covenant all the way back to Genesis, the watchtower just north of Jerusalem, Mizpah. That's the first center of influence. The second one is Bethel. In fact, they go to Bethel. They go to church to Bethel twice. You can read about it in the second half of chapter 20. And then in the first uh, part of chapter 21 is the second gathering. Bethel means house of God. In fact, the old King James Version translates it literally as house of God. Bethel was where Jacob had dreamt of a ladder going up to heaven, and he had met God, and so he called it Bethel, house of God. It was also where Deborah led Israel in the book of Judges, and it's where the Ark of the Covenant was kept in the time of Judges. We're we're told that in, in, uh, in in chapter 20, verse 27. It's where the Ark of the Covenant is. Bethel, the house of God, Mizpah. The watchtower, Bethel, the house of God. These centers of religious influence. This is where it was all taking place, where they were corrugating for all this gross stuff happened at Mizpah and Bethel. The house of God. The spiritual watchtower. And then Shiloh. Uh, We read about that from verse 12 to the end. Shiloh uh, had apparently become a location for some sort of annual feast. You can see that in verse 19. Behold, there is a yearly feast of the Lord at Shiloh. We don't know exactly what that yearly feast was. We're not told. But almost certainly from the way it's characterized here, it was almost certainly a version of the Feast of Booths. 
And the Feast of Booths, we know from the book of Exodus, went on for seven days. Uh, the, the Jewish people still celebrate the Feast of Booths. Of course, in 2023, this year, it took place at the end of September, the beginning of October. The Feast of Booths, it's a kind of harvest festival, I suppose. A bit like our contemporary Thanksgiving. And that now, we're told, took place at Shiloh because that was a a great center of religious influence. The Feast of Booths, if you wanted to go to that, you went to Shiloh. The annual feast took place there. And it's also Shiloh where Joshua's victory was celebrated and the land was allotted to the different Uh, the 12 tribes of Israel in Joshua chapter 18 they gathered at Shiloh to do that and so therefore Shiloh became associated with with the great victory of God Shiloh the place where the the victory that God had wrought through Joshua on the promised land was proclaimed and the lamb was apportioned to the tribes that was Shiloh but in uh, Judges chapter 18 we're told Shiloh had now decayed spiritually and become a place where Micah's idols were set up. It had become a center of idolatrous worship. So those are the three areas, uh, Mizpah, uh, the three assemblies, the three churches, Mizpah, Bethel, Shiloh. What's fascinating about them, I think, is that Mizpah, about four miles north of Jerusalem, and then Bethel further north still, And then Shiloh, even further north. And the author of Judges is telling us that Jerusalem, of course, which is meant to be the center of God's kingship, they're gradually going further and further and further and further away from a church where Jesus is the king. How can we characterize these assemblies, these churches in contemporary terms? Mizpah Uh, to me, is a legalistic church. They don't have Jesus as their king, and so Mizpah becomes a church of legalistic judgmentalism that leads to nationalistic violence and division. They're blind to their own faults, so they judge others. They don't seek true godly justice or repentance under God's gracious king. So what's the way that legalism works, isn't it? I've always uh, loved how uh, Chuck Swindoll, one of the great American preachers, uh, tells how he, he has this bit in one publication that he, he was interviewed in some years ago where he was talking about legalism and in, in a way that only Chuck Swindoll could get away with. So I'm using Swindoll to say this. Um, he said, the trouble with legalists is no one has ever told them to get lost. Now, that's a hard thing to say. And I suppose we all have a bit of legalism in us. But look at the devastating impact of Mizpah. Bethel, how can we characterize Bethel? I would say in contemporary terms, Bethel's a bit like a progressive church. Uh, They have the Bible, they listen to God's word, kind of. 
They have a word from the Lord, but they never ask the prior question of God, which is not who should go up first to kill all these people, but should we go up to kill all these people? And so because they don't come to God's word with a humble heart, really asking what they should do, they end up under the judgment of God as is declared by the Bible. The judgment shall begin with the house of God, and it did. They progressed until finally even their prayer life is a sort of caricature of a prayer life. Verse 3 of chapter 21, they said, oh Lord, and they're now praying. Yeah, verse 2, they, they, they sat there till evening before God. They lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. Oh Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened? I'll tell you why it happened, Bethel, because you went and killed all those people. Like they gradually become deaf to God so that now even their prayer life, even their prayer life is decayed. A legalistic church, progressive church. And then Shiloh, or is it even a church? I think we could call it a pagan church at best. Without Jesus as their king, Shiloh became a church of pagan morals, imitating the stories of rape and sexual deviance from the surrounding cultures and societies. We must not gloss over what this church did. It's a kind of sexual capture. And there are, there are other stories from pagan culture uh, uh, around at the time of this sort of thing taking place. And the reason why the book of Judges puts it here in these terms is so that we can understand that this church, the church at Shiloh, had now become so corrupt that its morals were essentially the same as the pagan surrounding culture. Become a pagan church. Now, friends... When we dive into the Bible and start to figure out not only what it was like in those terms, these different locations of Mizpah and Bethel and Shiloh and what they stood for, not only what it was said in those terms, but begin to realize what that means in our contemporary terms, we can see how relevant the Bible is. And this story here can be turned in the right direction. In those days when there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes, even in church. But if we put Jesus as our king, our experience of church is transformed. The story I think of in this regard is from a ministry I was involved with some years ago, and I, I've told versions of this story, I think, here at College Church, but never with, with this sort of detail, but I think it really helps us understand how we can turn the tide. When we were involved in a church plant or church revitalization, whatever you want to characterize what we were doing on the East Coast in, in New Haven, uh, we arrived there, and there were 20 people in a rented church building. They had, they had no money, no resources, very few people. And I, I remember reading with 
some amusement some of the literature that was given to me at the time about church growth theories. By the way, you can throw that stuff in the dumpster dive, I think. But And one of, the, one of the church growth theories, I was told, was in order for a church to grow, you have to have 1.5 parking spaces per American. Well, I looked outside the church and realized that we had zero parking spaces. So that wasn't going to go well. The, the other thing, they had all these theories about marketing and things you need to do. We didn't have a web page. We didn't even have a sign outside the door for most of the week. We, we were renting from the Seventh-day Adventist church. They met on Saturday. It was convenient. We could meet on Sunday. And there was no sign. The rest, no, no one even knew we existed. Talk about marketing. And God just sent us people. And the sheep were fed. And God, by his Spirit, converted people, and the church grew. And it got to a point where I think we were significantly bigger than the church, the Seventh-day Adventist church, who was graciously allowing us to rent. And so they kind of came to us and said, we think it's time for you to move on. You better find your own place. And so we had a timeline to do that. And I had got to know various people in the city over the years, of course, and I got to know a Roman Catholic church, a Roman Catholic priest in the area, an older gentleman, uh, nice chap. Um, I'll never forget the first time I met him. We knocked on his door, rang the doorbell, and he, he was a sort of stereotypical Irish Roman Catholic priest who was standing there at the door as he came in, sort of white hair with a cigarette in his mouth. <laughs> yeah, how can I be helping you? You know, and, uh, and we got to know him, nice guy, and he was in charge of two church buildings in the city. And I had my eye on one of those church buildings as something perhaps we could end up purchasing. But then it was sold to a development company or whatever, and it became apartments. And so, but then there was another building he was in charge of too, and we went to talk to him about it. Hit that. It wasn't so grand in many ways, but, but it had parking. And uh, this uh, dear old Roman Catholic priest was willing to recommend that we would be considered for purchasing it. See, he had a building but no people. We had a pe- people but no building. And so then I took my courage in both hands and wrote a letter to the bishop at the time. And my argument to the bishop, the Roman Catholic bishop, was essentially this, not exactly in these words, but this was the argument. I said to him, uh, look, there's a, there's a building that is probably going to come up for sale pretty recently, uh, pretty soon. And, you know, I know we're an evangelical um, organization. We're not Roman Catholic. We're evangelical. But the other, the other church has recently become uh, a series of a, uh, an apartment building. And also, by the way, and I knew this too to be true for a fact, just down the road, there's another form of Roman Catholic church building that's become a strip club. So we're Baptist, but it could be worse. <laughs> that's literally what I wrote to him. And unsurprisingly, I suppose, in my kind of early 30s hubris, I didn't hear anything back from the bishop. But to, but, but to his great credit... I did hear from the diocesan lawyer who called me up and said, Josh, we got your letter. Um, the powers that be have decided that we're going to issue a private bid to three parties and um, 
We've also, they've also decided they wanted, if possible, to be used for religious purposes. And of those three parties, you're the only religious one. So if you can come up with the money, it's yours. So then we had to tr- pray and trust, and, and God miraculously provided the money. And You know, that other, that other building, the, the, the church building that become a strip club, that's Shiloh. And it's happening around the, the world, around the Western world. Legalistic. Next step. Well, I don't want that. I don't want to be a place that judges you. We better come progressive and go with the times. Next step, Shiloh. And the answer? Jesus as the king. And his gracious gospel and his loving truth. Not legalistic, not progressive, and not Shiloh. Well, let's just reflect on it a little bit together and then we'll apply it before we close. First reflection, Jesus tells us to watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees, that is for the teaching of the Pharisees. So my dear friend, it is therefore right for us to wisely avoid the wolves of fake and false religious assemblies. Do not, I beg you, think that just because something says church on the door, it actually is a church. There's Mizpah, Bethel, Shiloh. Having said that, Jesus also teaches us, he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So, my friends, let us be encouraged. If Jesus is our king, he has promised that he will build his church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And therefore, no countervailing cultural wind is something we need to be scared of. The gates of hell will not prevail against us. Certainly, whatever Washington, D.C. or whatever, whoever else makes the laws around here decides, that will not prevail against Jesus' church, where he's king. But then I think we also need to reflect on Jesus' warning. Surely this is a warning passage to church life and religious life, these assemblies. Jesus warned the churches of Asia in Revelation. They were good churches. They were real churches, and yet they were warned to stay that way, to have Jesus as their king through following what he says, what the Spirit says to the churches through following his word. So briefly then, let's apply this teaching. I think first and perhaps most importantly, if, my dear friend, you've experienced so-called church that is unhealthy or not a real church, do not thereby give up on every church. Do not thereby give up on Jesus' church. It would be as nonsensical to give up on church because you had a bad experience of church as to give up on going to restaurants because you went to a restaurant and had a bad experience at a restaurant. Don't thereby conclude there's nothing to be, there's no good restaurant out there or no real restaurant. Go and find a good one. And we invite you to experience Jesus here at College Church.
as we seek to follow what the Spirit says to the churches through his word. And then, of course, at an individual level, we need to pray and seek God in genuineness and humility. If their prayer life was decayed, ours must be humble and genuine. And then for us as, as, a, as a church as a whole to listen to and follow his word as a congregation in how we do church rather than just aping and imitating whatever the latest trendy idea about how to do church is out there, following what he says. Because we want Jesus as our king. And then individually embrace Jesus as our king. Sometimes I've heard it said that the last part of a person to be converted is their wallet or their bank account, which I suppose may be true, but when I drive around Chicagoland, I sometimes wonder whether the last part of a person to be converted is their right foot on the accelerator. But we all have areas of our lives where the kingship of Jesus needs to come greater into play. Our sexual lives, our complaining lives, our gossip lives, our thankfulness. And then when we're convicted of sin, don't be discouraged. Repent, but don't be discouraged. If you're convicted of sin this morning, it's a sign that you're a Christian. And therefore repent. Only a non-Christian doesn't doesn't think they're a sinner. And therefore, we thank God for his gospel, the gracious, loving kingship of Jesus. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord God, we do thank you that the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ the Lord. We'll be singing that in a moment. We pray, Lord, that we'd increasingly have your, your authority, your kingship exercised through your word. We pray as we turn the corner to Advent next week and begin a, a series on joy, that we would uh, make the most of Advent, not just as a season to celebrate Christmassy stuff, but to renew our lives before you and to invite friends to, to church with us. Help us, Lord, to not buy into that misunderstanding of being spiritual but not religious, meaning that we don't need your people. Help us, Lord, to invest again in a local church. And we pray, Lord, that this local church would keep its focus on you and your rule through your word. We don't take that for granted, Lord. Have mercy on us. And we pray, Lord, that the gospel will go out to the far corners of the earth through the missionaries you sent out and, and many other areas of influence at work and at home. Thank you, Lord, that you are our king. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.